Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Hello, everybody. This is Dr. Satosh. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm not really sick. But we're going to be talking about the flu at the upcoming episode. So, uh, happy flu season. Your pediatric infectious disease doctor. Yeah, that's that's the holiday that comes right after Halloween. Flu season. That's I believe it starts with the Day of the Dead. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's when um, the dead come back to communicate with living researchers in order to let them know uh, which flu strains to use in this year's vaccine. No, I'm kidding. That's not how. So we thought we would give you a little bit of a extended backstory. So we will be giving you right after this. I can't even say these messages. Right after us talking will come more of us talking, but from the past. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Josh is slowly degenerating from like Bruce Banner to the Hulk. <laughs> we talk now. Then talk from before, talk later. <laughs> but what I was attempting to say is we are going uh, to be giving you clips from an old episode all about flu season uh, with some updates regarding this current one. Thank you, Santosh. That was awesome. <laughs> No, 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 no. I mean, every every one of us has like a Bruce Banner and a Hulk in us, and I think you just skewed towards it. Uh, although your trigger is not anger, it's more fatigue. <laughs> you wouldn't like me when I'm tired. Or you might. I, I don't know. I'm unconscious. <laughs> don't make him tired. He'll do it. I've seen him nap. Oh, man. That would be the best superpower ever. <laughs> well, before we get into the the episode proper, I, I figured we could use a little bit of art and high culture, and we do talk about the Spanish flu. And there was a surprising amount of poetry written both during and about the flu epidemic. And one of them I thought was just flat-out fantastic, and I, I would like to share oh, yes, it with please. you so, and our listeners. Ladies Santosh. and gentlemen, I present to you Dr. Joshua Duratsky reciting a poem on the... F Written by Walt Mason, one of the survivors of the Spanish flu in 1918, labeled the Influenza. Influenza labeled Spanish came and beat me to my knees. Even doctors couldn't banish from my form that punk disease, for it's not among the quitters 
Vainly doctors pour their bitters into ailing human critters. They just sneeze and swear and sneeze. Said my doctor, I have tackled every sort of ill there is. I have cured up people shackled by the gout and rheumatiz. With the itch and mumps I've battled in my triumphs have been tattled. But this flu stuff has me rattled, so I pause to say, gee whiz. I am burning, I am freezing in my little truckle bed. I am cussing, I am sneezing with a poultice on my head. And the doctors and the nurses say the patient growing worse is, and they hint around of hearses and of folks who should be dead. Doom has often held the cleaver pretty near my swan-like neck. I have had the chills and fever till my system was a wreck. I have had the yaller janders, foot and mouth disease and glanders, and a plague they brought from Flanders on an old windjammer's deck. But this measly influenza has all other ills outclassed. It has put me in a frenzy like a soldier who's been gassed. If the villainous inventor, this my lodge of pain, should enter, I would use the voice of Stentor till he had till he had been roundly sassed. May the influenza vanish. Of all ailments, it's the worst. But I don't believe it's Spanish. Haven't thought so from the first. On my couch of anguish squirmin', I've had leisure to determine that the blamed disease is German, which is why it is accursed. Oh, bravo. Bravo. Oh, that was awesome. And uh, I believe, Santos, you had the history this week with why it's not really the Spanish flu. And we do provide a little bit of explanation, but I think you dug up some new info about it. I thought it was really cool. So the Spanish flu actually came around in the spring of 1918. And every other country in Europe, as people were dying everywhere, this was totally not just Spanish. Everyone was trying to keep calm and carry on, so to speak. And so every other country except Spain was trying to say, shh, there's no flu. It's okay. Everything is fine. Don't worry about it. But while the Allied and Central Powers were suppressing the news, the media in Spain was reporting on everything. So they've got headlines going on in Madrid in late May 1918. Um, And because Spain was kind of uh, trying to stay out of the war a little bit and they were focusing on themselves, they talked about this pandemic that was going on. Now, interestingly, the Spanish people did not call this thing the Spanish flu, because, of course, you know, why would they give it such a nasty name? They thought that the virus spread to them from France, which makes a little bit of sense, because, you know, coming down from France on the Iberian Peninsula. um, So they actually called this thing in their newspapers the French flu. (laughs) And you have to remember that, Josh, this is way before air travel, right? So this is way before these things could spread from person to person over the Atlantic in a heartbeat, you know, because you got stuck on a plane with someone. I feel like Spain would be that kid who, like, really objects to the nickname everyone else gave him. Yeah, yeah, they're just like, no. And it's just like, it's not the Spanish flu, you guys. It's the French flu. Everyone knows France has cooties. (laughs) So in essence, what happened was nobody else was talking about the flu. Only Spanish media was talking about the flu. So that means if any media talked about the flu, it was Spanish. And so everyone outside of Spain who received Spanish newspapers said, oh, Spanish flu. Is that like... It's like the much worse version of Spanish fly. <laughs> I'm uh, <clears throat> not familiar, Dr. Josh. Shall we move on? Oh, well, it, it, it goes down in Spanish Harlem. Played by Carlos Santana. Oh, I love that song. So with that, let's dig back into our travelogues and hear all about the flu and flu season. And for our original listeners, you can even enjoy a little bit of our original theme song. So, uh, without further ado, off we go. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Travel Medicine Podcast. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. And I'm your ER doc, Dr. Ward. Although it is the holiday season, it is also... Smack dab in the middle of flu season. 
which I'm sure you well know, because if I'm getting hit with it hard, I can only imagine what it's like in the ER. You might be getting hit harder than we are, because I'm looking at a flu map right now, as Illinois is one of the one of the hardest hit states in the country right now. I practice here in California, and we are in the green zone, which is minimal. So it hasn't quite traveled out here yet, but Texas, Florida, the Deep South, uh, parts of the East Coast, New York, and Illinois, according to the CDC flu report, are being hit pretty hard. You think that's because these are all travel centers? They certainly are, and um, I think the travel centers spread it, and then the places next to the travel centers get it. You used to work out in New York, right, Ward? That's right, I did. Yeah, so I remember one one time right around this time of year, because this is usually when I travel along with the rest of the country, I came out to visit you at your old hospital, uh, Maimonides, and we tooled around for a bit. And uh, do you remember any of the places we went? We went to this particularly awesome bar that I, I knew always existed, and it's... Well, actually, I knew the hot dog part always existed, but behind the hot dog stand, there was a bar. There was a secret bar. Right, the the PDT, or Please Don't Tell, where they had, in addition to fantastic hot dogs with deep-fried tater tots and eggs and all those wonderful things, you could get in a phone booth, dial a secret number, a section of the phone booth would slide back, and you could walk into the actual bar. And that turned out to be one of the coolest, classiest um, cocktail lounges in the Lower East Side. Yeah, so I, I don't remember the actual the actual address of it, but you you can still probably look it up. It's called PDT for Please Don't Tell. So there I've, I've spoiled the secret for everyone. In fact, Josh, until you told me, I used to not even know that that place existed. I, I used to walk by that hot dog place all the time, keep on walking, and go into Chipotle. <laughs> that's the kind of New Yorker I was. Um, oh, I found out what's the hot dog place is called Criff Dogs, and I first yeah. found out about it from my friend uh, Jessica Tiffins, who who does a lot of opera singing, or at least, and I don't know how she found out about it. But yeah, so it was a great way. And then of course we came back after being out in you know a nice chilly New York winter and getting soused, and ended up uh, going to what I can only call the rapiest Japanese restaurant I have ever seen. Uh, do you remember that noodle place where, like, they just... I, I sure can, do. Yeah. The food was amazing. The, the decor, less so. <laughs> the, the the company was great, um, but, the, the yeah, the decorations have something... I don't know. I can't put my finger on it or <laughs> something else on it. It... I mean, the entire menu was covered in traditional Japanese artwork depicting essentially rape. And or tentacle porn, depending on what page of the menu you were on. Somebody was always being tied up and... (laughs) Yeah, which was really disturbing to see when you went into the restroom. You're like trying to do your business and you look like, there sure are a lot of people looking very unhappy in here. (sighs) Or happy, I don't know which... I don't know. I, I, I can't... I can't tell. (laughs) Um, Anyway, I bring it up only because, I don't know about you, I definitely ended up getting the flu shortly after that. I think more from the the being out and the alcohol and the late hours we were keeping. But these are all big issues in cities. So if you do end up in in New York and traveling through, these are some lesser-known places that are worth checking out uh, for great hot dogs, secret drinks, and good but disturbingly imaged Japanese food. And it's all within like a couple blocks of each other. It's, uh, it's, in, the, it's in the East Village. So, there. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about you know, some of the, the things that make this the flu season and cold season and those. So we don't have our infectious disease guy, but I, I would say I feel pretty comfortable with it since, Ward, you and I probably see gosh only knows how many cases. So... For anyone who's kind of unfamiliar, what's the difference between the colds, the flu, and bronchitis? Well, the virus makes the big difference. I mean, if you're talking about what's causing flu versus what's causing the a cold, quote-unquote, the, the virus that causes the cold and the virus that causes the flu are in different families. And, you know, clinically, colds tend to be a lot more benign. 
they're the more benign version of a flu. So you tend to get upper respiratory runny nose, dry cough, mildly icky feeling. If you have the flu, you feel like you got run over by a truck. So severity of symptoms is one way to tell them apart. If you just have maybe a little bit of the sniffles or runny nose, that's fine. If you feel like you got hit by a truck, more likely to be flu. Yeah. Now, what about all these different kinds of flus that you hear about? Bird flu, swine flu, I don't know, elephant flu, armadillo flu. What are we, what are we up to? What... What year of the zodiac flu is it? Uh, this year it's, but that doesn't necessarily that doesn't necessarily match up. I think it was not the year of the pig when the swine flu hit. Both with the cold and the flu, it's it's really just supportive care. I mean, you can still go about your regular day. Uh, are you contagious? Are you infectious? Yes. For you know, once you kind of start seeing symptoms. Um, but the entire course is about 7 to 10 days for a cold and can be up to 14 for the flu. Now, every year the U.S. has had a flu epidemic. One of the worst of all time was the 1918 influenza epidemic. It's often called the Spanish flu, but the beautiful thing is that was a great piece of PR because the Spanish flu actually not anything to do with Spain. Why do they call it the Spanish flu? Because, well, we're a bunch of xenophobic people, and it was around World War I. Killed more people than the bubonic plague. Oh, well, as I'm, as I'm going back through my, my notes, I actually see there was a little, a little uh, children's rhyme that they chanted around this time, which is oh. adorable. It's, I had a little bird. Its name was Enza. I opened the window and influenza. <laughs> <laughs> so there were a bunch of terrified children with their doors closed and windows closed at night. Yeah. The name of the Spanish flu, it did have large mortalities in Spain, but the first wave of the flu appeared early in spring of 1918 in Kansas and military camps through the U.S. Uh, there was essentially no response or even acknowledgement of the epidemics in March and April in the military camps, so they didn't prepare. So the lack of action was kind of later, because it first kind of appeared in March and April in 1918 in Kansas. Um, and then this is all from the British Medical Journal, the BMJ. Then when it kind of hit the rest of the country in winter, it came back for the second wave and arrived then in Boston with shipments of machinery and supplies, uh, and then just kind of kept going through these waves. It was pretty bad in September, and then it died down a little bit, and then hit another wave and came up and killed about 200,000 in October. Um, and then in the war, when all the soldiers came back, there were more. But the strain didn't actually start in Spain. It's that so many of the soldiers had been out fighting, kind of ended up back here, and then all these people in close quarters ended up spreading the flu to each other. Oh my gosh, think about back in the days, even today, can you imagine 200,000 people dead? And, and that's just one month, October of 2018. Or sorry, October of 200,000 October of 1918, not 2018. Jesus, I mean, you know, 200,000. And compared to that to the Ebola deaths here in the United States, I mean, I think that was one, right? Or two. Uh, stores were handing out gauze masks to be worn in public. Funerals were limited to 15 minutes for viewing of the body. That's how big people were concerned about it. Wow. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we have it pretty good, I would say, all things considered. But you had a couple of uh, statistics that you were looking up, right, Ward? Oh, that's right. Okay, so um, speaking of when you visited back uh, when I was at Maimonides, that year... New York City, in particular, was hit hard by the swine flu, or what we called the swine flu. It was so bad that our hospital opened up a special side of the ER. We called it Swine Clinic. And I was, once in a while, we would designate a young physician, a resident physician, to be working in that swine clinic, and we called him the swine resident. And um, good sure times. I'm sure he loved that. I uh, hated it. Because <laughs> if you were if you were the if you were the swine resident, you almost were certain to catch the flu. We're talking about the strains of influenza virus viruses. The scientific name for the swine flu was the H1N1 
a strain of influenza A virus. Back in 2009, it was first detected in, in Mexico. And because Mexico is such a popular travel destination, um, it didn't take long for it to travel to other parts of the world. Oh, you know what? The Spanish flu was an H5N1 strain. The virus of 18, 1918 was also a bird flu. I don't know if you remember, but even that was only a few years ago in 2009. I mean, flu vaccines were at a shortage. There were not enough vaccines to go around. And that flu season lasted well beyond what traditionally, you know, March traditionally is towards the tail end of flu season. But that year in 2009, March was just beginning, just beginning of the peak of the flu season. That was the strange thing about H, uh, the swine flu, the H1N1 flu, was that a lot of deaths happened in seemingly young, healthy adults. Young pregnant women were especially vulnerable. Well, influenza is an RNA virus. So we always talk about different strains, H1N1, H5N1, uh, H whatever. But they're RNA viruses, and one of the characteristics of RNA viruses is that they have a very, very high mutation rate. And that is why even if you get the flu shot, and you absolutely should, uh, you may still get the flu. The shot itself is not giving you the flu. It, it, the shot is made up of just a couple of proteins, denatured proteins, from the most common strain that scientists suspect will hit in a given year, and that's injected, and your body recognizes those proteins, makes antibodies, so the virus itself won't have anywhere that it can hook its little claws into your cells. Your body will say, hey, hey, I recognize this. We're not going to do it. Um, but despite that, I still have so many people who are convinced that getting the shot gives them the flu, and that just simply doesn't match up with the evidence. You may still get the flu even if you get the shot because there are hundreds of different strains of the flu and they're constantly mutating. But your flu vaccine is aimed to protect you from the most common and most widely spread versions of the virus. It's kind of like uh, trying to predict who is going to get sick from what and where in any given year. So big props to the CDC for the fact that we're able to even have a flu vaccine and that we're not always a year behind. Mm -hmm. well, let's talk about, while we're on the subject of vaccines, let's talk about different types of vaccines. You know how they say when you get a flu vaccine, they ask you about egg allergies. Well, there's a reason for that. Um, most of our vaccine are derived from egg-based flu vaccines. There are three types, generally three types of vaccines. The first one is just, it's called an egg-based flu vaccine. An egg, a chicken egg is basically a big giant cell. Viruses infect cells. They introduce a the flu virus into an egg and let it grow and replicate in that egg. After that, they kill they kill the flu virus and they purify certain portions of that virus so it triggers an immune reaction in uh, in humans and then they then they package it into a vaccine little shots of vaccines. Now, when you say they kill the virus, how are they doing that? Are they scrambling the egg? Sunny side up. No. <laughs> you know, I don't know exactly how they do it. Each company has their own methods. They kill, they make sure they kill the, uh, they kill the, the, uh, the virus. Now, there is a unkilled or weakened vaccine, the live flu shot. That's the one that they squirt up your nose. That one has a live virus inside, but it's a, it's a weakened and attenuated virus that's not the same as the regular flu. That one is actually derived from eggs as well. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. So those are the egg-based flu vaccines. Um, now, if you have, if you're immunocompromised, if you are a cancer patient on chemo, if you have end-stage HIV/AIDS, obviously you should not be getting the live vaccine. If you're on, if you're a transplant patient, you've had a heart or liver yeah. transplant, and you're on a lot of steroids and immunosuppressants, anything that kind of puts your immune system at a weaker or less strong position than the average person's. You should not be taking any of these live virus vaccines. Although that's the, one that squirts up your nose. Right. Although the regular one, the, the shot in your arm, is still safe. And actually, I think at this point, almost a mandatory, a mandatory part of transplant care, as well as a few 
other uh, immunocompromised because you are so very susceptible. Yeah. Well, the second type is called it's a, called a cell-based flu vaccine, and even though it's they call it cell-based because it's it's grown in um, mammalian cells. And, however, to start that vaccine, they also it begins with an egg-grown vaccine. They grow the viruses first in eggs, and then they put them into cultured mammalian cells instead of incubating them just in eggs because. For whatever reason, it takes just way too many eggs, <laughs> a large number of eggs. I'm picturing a- scientists like going into Costco and buying cartons and cartons you better of, have a- of eggs and be like, card or whatever that <laughs> safe right. way card. Right. So, so like, like none of that. We we're gonna grow it in mammalian cells and save some chicken eggs. Okay. So that one also is based on eggs, and the only truly truly egg-free. Um, that doesn't involve chicken eggs at all type of vaccine is a third called recombinant flu vaccines. Um, they grow portions of that virus that triggers your immune response, that part of the protein in insect cells. And then they purify the protein and they package it. And that's the, that's the, that's the only flu vaccine that's 100% egg-free. Okay. And flu shots are available pretty much everywhere. I mean, you can get them in Walmart. You get them from your family doctors. This is not something you even necessarily need to make a formal doctor's appointment to get done. The general season for the flu tends to peak between December and February. However, it can begin as early as October and continue as late as May. So the CDC recommends a yearly flu vaccine for everyone six months of age and older And the earlier you get it, ideally in October or November, helps to make sure the most people are vaccinated and makes it harder for the virus to spread. Now, if you haven't gotten it at that point, if you haven't gotten it yet, should you still? Absolutely, because you still want to protect yourself against the most common flu viruses that are going around. Now, if you're older than 65, There's another vaccine that's also recommended, but it's not a yearly one. Um, That's the pneumococcal vaccine, and that helps to prevent the most common cause of pneumonia in the elderly. Or one, sorry, I should say one of the most common causes. Uh, Do you see a lot of pneumococcal pneumonia, Ward? We presume it's pneumococcal until culture tells us otherwise. I mean, right. most of the, most pneumonias, community-acquired pneumonias, are going to be pneumococcal, unless you catch that, you know, pneumonia in the hospital. Okay. Yeah. So the pneumococcal one, you're actually just supposed to get once after 65 with a booster dose about five years later. So this is not a yearly thing. This is when you hit age 65, you know, you go, you say, all right, I need the pneumococcal vaccine. The recommendations for the influenza season this year are the nasal spray for healthy children two through eight years of age because kids don't like shots. Uh, And it also, the nasal spray may work better than the flu shot in younger children. However, if it's not immediately available, give them the shot. For everyone else, they really recommend preferentially the shot over the attenuated spray. And really, for some reason, it just seems to be in kids that the nasal spray shows a little bit of better effectiveness. Um, And the viruses that this season's vaccine protects against, thanks, CDC, influenza A, which, as you mentioned, is an H1N1, Mm. uh, influenza A, H3N2, and influenza V. And all the vaccine right now is made to protect against a California H1N1 virus, a Texas H3N2-like virus, and a mass. Some of them also have an additional B virus, which is a Brisbane-like virus. So our, the concoction right now will protect you against ones that were kind of seen to be most heavily going around, apparently one that made its way over from Australia. Because, hey, who doesn't like traveling? This year, they're, they're suspecting uh, that um, a lot of doctors are predicting that this is going to be a bad flu bad flu year, too, partially because there's just a lot of flu going around and it's quite early. And the other reason is under half of influenza A's that are testing positive, H3N2, the Texas strain, um, the, the vaccine is not a perfect match for the current uh, H3N2 that's going around. Flu, symptom-wise, you'll have muscle aches that are a key parts. So if you're not having any muscle problems, it's all just runny nose, 
sore throat, difficulty breathing, that's probably more likely to be a cold. If you have all of those and now you're having a lot of muscle aches, much more likely to be flu. One other thing that was causing a bit of a scare, I believe, earlier in the year was MERS, or Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome. Uh, there are a couple cases in 2014, people who traveled from Saudi Arabia to the United States. Um, all the cases have been linked to countries in or near the Arabian Peninsula, hence the name. However, the season for that was more August-May. So it's you, even though you can't determine whether somebody has seasonal influenza or MERS or illness due to any other pathogen or bacteria, there are tests to detect all these. And you know your doctor will determine if you should be tested for any of them based on your symptoms, clinical presentation, and travel history. I know we're a travel show. I know we're a medical show. I cannot emphasize enough how important it is to be as honest and thorough as possible with your doctor about where you've been and what you've been doing because that really does change what our thought process is for what you may have and what to do about it. Um, but we are more likely to have, we're right in the middle of a flu season, so it's more likely to be that than any of these slightly more exotic things, unless you've been to those areas. Ward, who should be coming to see usually you in the ER? What what kind of flu cases, What's what would you consider the kind of thing that absolutely should be evaluated in a hospital? Well, if you're if you're older, and by that I mean 65 and above, and if you are immunocompromised, if you have HIV, AIDS, um, if you're a transplant patient, if you're a chemo patient, you need to be paying me a visit in the hospital. A lot of that's common sense. If you're if you have flu, you don't necessarily have to come to the hospital. Lots of hydration, rest are probably the best bets for uh, a speedy recovery. Now. I know that somebody out there is going to say, well, can't you give antibiotics? And no, because it's a virus. And someone else will instantly respond, well, what about that Tamiflu drug that I've heard so much about? Well, hypothetical person, allow me to respond. Tamiflu is actually an antiviral. It's Oseltamivir. And if you catch flu symptoms early on, within like the first three, two to three days, really, then yes, what we do is we give this medication Tamiflu. It's only effective if it's given within the first 48 hours of symptoms being noticed. If you give it beyond that, it does nothing. Doesn't harm you, doesn't help. So what is this effect that Tamiflu has? Well, all the studies have shown that it essentially shortens the duration of your flu by about two or three days. So in a illness that usually lasts seven to ten days, it will now only last four to seven. That's good. That's still worth doing if you catch it within the first 48 hours. If you're outside that period, then really the best thing you can do, stay home, watch daytime television, and just flood yourself with fluids till your eyeballs are swimming. Um, chicken soup, water, tea, juices, matzo ball soup if you're in New York. Uh, the best thing you can do is just keep on replenishing your fluids and get plenty of rest. And that's really all we would be doing in the hospital, except instead of matzo ball soup, we give you IV fluids. Another great resource you can consider using is just giving your doctor a call. Have a phone conversation. Maybe your doctor can prescribe a call in a prescription for you. That way you don't, uh, if you already have the flu, giving it to everyone else in the waiting room. If what you have is not the flu, you might avoid catching the flu sitting in the waiting room <laughs> next to um, a room full of coughing people. Now, you bring up a very good point, Ward, and as always, we encourage you, speak with your regular doctor. If you're not sure, ask. That's why we're here. When you cough, how do you cough? When you Do you cover your mouth with your hand? I have a special technique. I cough inside a shirt. <laughs> I, I, pull, <laughs> I pull my shirt over my nose and I cough. In you just destroyed such a wonderful segue. I was getting ready. All right, fine. So, but, yes, I you can mean, use you can use the uh, you can use the shirt method. That's one good one. You know, you always see these these signs certainly around the hospital. And I, I think I've seen them a couple other places where they say cover your cough, um, which you should be doing. But most people tend to cover their cough or their sneeze with their hand. 
And here's the problem with that. First off, you know, if you want to imagine how fast things come out of your mouth and nose when you're coughing or sneezing, I, I think they equated it to like 90 miles an hour, which means it's almost like there's a tiny little baseball pitcher inside your nose winding up and letting loose with a bacteria fastball, wow. which then hits smack against your hand and something moving at that speed, there's going to be a little bit of splatter effect. So even when you're covering your cough with your hand, some is still getting out to either side. Even if we you know, hypothesize that it doesn't and that doesn't kind of still put some people a little bit at risk, now you've got a bunch of dead bacteria sitting around on your hand. That's not fun. Nobody likes that. Some, so, of, them ain't, some of them ain't dead. Right. Uh, so this is one of the many reasons we emphasize hand hygiene, you know, washing your hands when you cough, when you sneeze. Wash your hands, soap and water, long enough to sing happy birthday twice. That's that's the length of time that you really should be washing. But rather than cough into your hand, the actual new recommended way, and I say new although we've been kind of promoting this for the last couple years, has been cough into the crook of your elbow. So bring bring your arm up, bend your arm, and then kind of sneeze or cough into the corner of your elbow uh, for a couple reasons. One, a lot of guys, and I'm going to say specifically guys, I'm calling gender out on this, tend to wipe their nose on their sleeve anyway. And you do wash your clothes, hopefully. By coughing into your elbow, there's a much larger area that is covering your mouth. So your likelihood of bringing those bacteria, of those viruses, of spreading it, through the cough is smaller because now how many people in a given day are touching your elbows especially the inner part of your elbows I'm gonna guess no one or at least outside of a few very select communities a small number right um, again by doing it into your arm rather than your hand you can still carry on you know you can shake hands with people you can touch computer keyboards doorknobs all these without being at a higher risk of spreading the virus so you may not have realized it. You've been coughing wrong all these years. Now, cough into your arm or your elbow and not into your hand. And regardless of where you choose to cough, make sure you wash your hands with soap and water. So influenza, because I love doing my etymology, uh, you maybe want, what's, what is the word influenza from, actually? And, uh, what is it from? And it actually dates back to the medieval Latin influentia, uh, which means influence. Now, we're not talking about influence like, oh, gosh, sure, you've convinced me. Uh, that guy had a lot of influence. It is more on the notion of influence from the stars or the heavens or the occult. Uh, so it was, it's been used in Italian. The word influence has been used in Italian for diseases at least since around the 1500s. For example, scarlet fever was called influenza di febbre scarlatina, or influence of the fever or influence of the red fever. So all sicknesses in that point would be kind of given this influenza day whatever. You are under the influence of the plague, influence of the rats, influence of the stars. Um, and over the years, that was kind of shortened. As it came here, you'd be under the influence of severe colds. That dates back to sort of mid-19th century. And then we began dropping the inf what you were under the influence of and just called it influenza. There you go. That's, it's from, uh, it's Italian from medieval Latin. So next time you're like, oh, I've got a case of the flu, what you're really saying is, I'm under the influence. And <laughs> although it's not, not the traditional under the influence picture that you Don't may say think. that to a cop, but yeah. yeah. Just say. Officer, I can explain this. I'm under the influence of the flu. Ah. And the NyQuil associated. I plead guilty. So while influenza is caused by a virus, pneumonia, which has a lot of very similar sort of presentations, again, the sore throat, the fever, occasionally muscle aches, is caused by a bacteria. Uh, there's a couple different kinds of pneumonia. There's a walking pneumonia where people don't really appear that sick but do have the pneumonia infection. And then there's the more stereotypical pneumonia, which we tend to see again, in the more elderly or immunocompromised and sometimes the very young. Uh, the difference with these is you'll tend to see a much higher fever with a bacterial infection than a flu, than a viral infection. A lot of people kind of think the bacteria themselves cause the fever and that's not quite right. 
What happens is your body, when it realizes it's infected, increases its own internal temperature in an attempt to sort of cook the bacteria out of itself. So when you're under a fever, that means your body is responding appropriately to having these infections. And that's why we always encourage anybody who's immunocompromised or pregnant or on chemo or has these things because their immune systems may not be working the same way. So even though they may have a big infection, they may not have a fever because their body does not have the appropriate response mechanisms. Well, to add to what you're saying, um, most pneumonias are caused by bacteria. You can have a viral pneumonia, although it's rare. And actually, in one of the things, one of the complications, one of the things that can kill you from the flu is either a viral pneumonia or a combination of viral bacterial pneumonia or you know the the uh, the the flu virus can make you weaker and more susceptible to a bacterial pneumonia and a lot of people start out with the flu and die of a pneumonia and so i'm going to take a moment here to do a very brief sort of palliative announcement if you're coming in to the hospital and you're of any age and you have pneumonia or the flu or one of those things really Try and talk with your family before you get to the hospital about this, about what sort of things you'd like done in terms of aggressive resuscitation. And whenever I have someone in the hospital, I, the hospital, I always ask them, if while you're here, your heart were to stop beating or you were to stop breathing, how aggressive would you like us to be in resuscitating you? This is not a question of, I don't want to be on machines forever. This is simply, do you want us to do chest compressions where we're pressing hard enough to break ribs? I certainly, I certainly have that discussion with anyone who can potentially go there. Right, and a lot That's... of people may not, may not be thinking about this until they get to the hospital. So if you kind of discuss, would you want chest compressions? Would you want electric shocks? Would you want to have a tube put down your throat? All of which are very, very aggressive. Get that discussion started now at home. Um, and if you do, great. But I think it's a good kind of talk to sit around and have, especially in the season when people do get sick and do have to go into the hospital and don't know what may happen moving it's forward. It's a much easier conversation when you're not sick and when you're at home, and that is a that is a time when emotion, emotions fly high, and maybe things, maybe you would look at it differently. When Pneumonia, there's three kind of major ones. The most common is streptococcal pneumonia, then there's haemophilus influenza, and the third one is more of an atypical. It's mycoplasma pneumonia. Those are going to be really kind of what's causing pneumonia in most people. What do you need for that? You need to be in a hospital where we give you at least a couple days of antibiotics in the hospital before we decide if you're safe enough to send home with oral. Other than that, all of them, the cold, the flu, pneumonia, will all have very similar sort of symptoms. Uh, briefly, we can touch on bronchitis. That's just an inflammation of the airways, or it's a reactive airway disease. It's almost like asthma for people who don't have asthma. You don't need any antibiotics for it. Uh, Ward, most are you able? Time it's caused by, most of the time, it's caused by a virus. That's yeah. why. Just, it's not, it's not uh, helpful to use antibiotics. Um, best thing you can do is take some kind of cough suppressant or cough syrup and sometimes you'll require breathing treatments with nebulizers so again if you have bronchitis or you're frequently exposed to bronchitis it can occur with changes in temperature or weather it can occur if you're around a lot of particle or particulate matter such as cigarette smoke or very heavily polluted areas uh, have a lot of smog Anything can really kind of set it off. And again, it's easiest to think of it as equivalent to an asthma-type picture. Um, as always, if you're not sure, ask your doctor. Call up your primary care physician. Go to an urgent care. If you're running fevers, if you're really not feeling well, go to an emergency room. There's a lot of resources available. So I think that covers all of the sort of cold and flu season things that we wanted to talk about. Uh, would you agree, Ward, or is there anything I'm leaving out? Um, no, I think we got it. So that is uh, the flu episode there, but, you know, when we first recorded that, it was a different flu season. So, Dr. Santosh, you're our infectious disease specialist. Why don't you bring us up to date? 
Sure. So thing the first is that we don't really recommend the live attenuated influenza vaccine anymore. And here in the United States, you cannot get it for kids at all. So shots only. And it turns out that the component vaccine or the injectable vaccine, which is not live attenuated, um, it's actually much more effective than the intranasal one. So that's number one. Um, number two, yeah, the flu shot's different every year, and it's a huge pain in the, well, either arm, leg, or butt, wherever you get your shots. <laughs> but the problem is that we have, with the flu virus, genetic drift and genetic shift. We have a yearly change in those little antigens, those proteins that flu uses in order to invade your cells and make you sick. So we've got surveillance centers all around the world. We've got Atlanta, Georgia, London in the United Kingdom, Melbourne, Australia, which is the Victoria Infectious Diseases Reference Laboratory, Tokyo, Japan, and Beijing, China. And the WHO and here the CDC in the United States work together every single year to look at the flu, uh, starting with the Southern Hemisphere. So actually, you know, May, April, something like that, the Melbourne influenza infectious disease reference laboratory becomes the most important and then as the flu season kind of closes up shop in the southern hemisphere around august or september and the flu season starts up in the northern hemisphere september october we start paying attention to the flu uh, antigenic variation that we see in our labs in beijing and atlanta and london um, and we kind of come together. There's a bunch of scientists that come together and say, hey, this is the concoction of viruses that we should use in the vaccine. These are the most likely ones to infect the world. So we've got, from since 2009, we've got the H1N1 pandemic virus, and we all know about that one. That one's technically called A. Michigan 45 2015, which is H1N1-like. Uh, and then the next one is our influenza A, and that is this year a mix of uh, Hong Kong virus, and then our, well, no, no, that's our flu B virus. So our influenza B virus comes from Victoria, which is the Victoria uh, Infectious Disease Laboratory, which is in Melbourne, and the Yamagata lineage. So those are all... Oh my, the Victoria and the Yamagata lineages. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they make for a fine progeny. <laughs> so we take the components from those individual viruses. The H1N1 will be put into every single annual virus. But then the flu A, the H3N2 will be in there, and then the two flu B viruses. And if you get a shot, with all those three, I uh, should say four components, then you're much better off and much better protecting your fellow human beings as well. Well, don't open your mouth, cover your cough, and remember, if you have to sneeze, don't forget to dab and destroy all bacteria. Now, Santosh, do you have a just the tip for us to sign? I do. My just the tip comes to us all the way from Yale. And underneath the medical school dormitories, uh, you will find a shop of horrors. Little shop, little shop of horrors, little shop. So we, uh, I, I actually posted on our Facebook page uh, a great article from STAT, which was published on October 31st. And the title is, In a Basement on Yale's Campus, A Shop of Horrors Concealed Medical History. And what basically happened is that the great Dr. Harvey Cushing, yeah, so uh, he was the great neurosurgeon, so he actually loved to collect a bunch of brains, <laughs> as one does, and he, of course, preserved these in formaldehyde, and he saved ones which had really specific pathologies, which would be interesting for teaching purposes, and he saved up brains and brains and brains, and there was nowhere to put them. So eventually they got moved underneath the 
medical school dorms. <laughs> so after 1979, they went ahead and moved it downstairs. And if you go there, you're going to see uh, a, a giant wall of a jar of brains, along with photographs of people who have suffered different neurological pathologies and who've undergone neurosurgery. Finally, a memorial that says the Yale Medical School Brain Society, where a bunch of people can kind of keep like signing their names year after year if you join the... Uh, the society, you can kind of add to the list of members on there. So it's a great little place to visit. And in advance, please stop stealing the brains to reanimate your zombies. We only have a limited supply. Right. The same thing goes for Frankenstein's people. That's a no-no. <laughs> so that's it for this week. As always, we love your comments, questions, concerns, and feedback. So, uh, you could support us spiritually, emotionally, or financially by following any of the links in the show notes and leaving us a rating, a review, or just telling other folks about us so we can keep on bringing you the same great programming week after week. Our show is produced by me with a lot of help from all our co-hosts, and our theme music is by Rachel Leisure. And with that, until next time, as always, happy travels. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.